Well, hey, cousins, you are listening to Revolutionary Hood Rat with Kim Young of Dope Black Social Worker, and welcome back. We got us another episode of the podcast. I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> Sticking with something. Look at me being disciplined and shit in my own life. Wow. All right, let's go ahead and jump straight into the revolutionary news for the week. I want to take an opportunity to shout out all of the organizations and individuals and people who are moving towards some sort of collective action or bringing attention and raising awareness to student debt cancellation. As many of y'all are aware, allegedly, um, student loan repayments resume in October. And it is, I'm transparent, right? Like incredibly overwhelming. Thinking about having to pay student loans after what, not paying them for over three years. And I, I just don't know. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I gotta figure that shit out ASAP Rocky, but shout out to organizations like the Student Debt Crisis Center and the Debt Collective. Anybody else who is organizing and doing work around student debt cancellation because this is a racial equity issue. It's a gender equity issue. It's a class issue. It's everything, absolutely everything. And it definitely impacts individuals that find themselves within that millennial generation. Because if y'all was like me, I was pushed into college. There were no other opportunities or options provided to me. There was no trade school, no programs, no nothing. It was like, you're going to college and you'll figure that shit out. Still remember signing my first promissory note at 18, not knowing what the hell I was signing, but understood like, actually, did I even understand? I just knew that if I didn't sign it, I didn't have money to go to school. And I had been told year after year after year after year, I was going to school. So I said, shit, I guess I got to sign this paper so I can go to school. So the short of it is I got $80,000 in black debt available for anybody that wants to buy. Hit me up if you want a portion of it, because I'm not going to be able to pay that back. <laughs> <laughs> but shout out to the organizations and the individuals who are uplifting and doing the work around just the student debt cancellation in this country because it's it's very ghetto. Very, very ghetto. And in some other ghetto news that has happened within the last week, look, I don't even be on Twitter like that, but I opened up my phone and all of a sudden I see this the Twitter app, which used to be blue with a little bird on it, was now black with an X. And I said, what's this about? Um, I had heard some of the mumblings that Twitter was going to change to X because, you know, Elon Musk bought Twitter however long ago for all those billions of dollars. Ghetto once again. And that man is strange. Like he legit just looks like a translucent pasty worm. But I don't even really be on Twitter like that. But like I said, that X shit is just weird and very, very ghetto. And I feel for people who have been on that app since the beginning and have found like community, belonging, visibility, and made money, right? Off of Twitter. And I don't really see people going around saying, yeah, follow me on X. Because that just sound ghetto. Super, super, super ghetto. Um, What else I want to talk about? So I know I mentioned last week that we would talk about they clone Tyrone on this week's episode, but I'm just not ready. That movie has really played mind games 
Like there's so many themes, so many talking points, so many places to begin a conversation that I can't even wrap my head around it. Um, Like I have to go watch it for a third time because the synopsis, like my takeaway from the movie can't just be that chicken, great drink, perm, music, and black men are killing us. That can't be it. And by us, I mean black people, not anybody else, just black people. Um, that can't be my only takeaway <laughs> from that movie. It's like, that can't just be it. So I got to go watch it again. I got to watch it again. There's so many threads, so many themes. And now I'm even more interested in learning about the director because from some of the information that I've been able to get access to, he has seems to struggle with his own like racial or black identity and maybe even some respectability politics growing up in the South, particularly like in proximity to Tuskegee, Alabama. And that alone, I imagine, influenced the way that film played out. But too many layers, too many layers. And if y'all haven't seen the movie already, like go do it. Go get your mind in the haze. Go have your ahas. Like, what in the world is going on? I'm going to tell you, you probably got to watch it more than one time. Because the first time I watched it, I didn't really pay attention. I was really focused on, like, all the other things that were happening in the movie and not so much the themes. The second time I watched it, I picked up on some new stuff. I was like, yo, what? And now I got to watch it for a third time after learning about the director because I just got to make sure it's not giving (laughs) anti-black. You feel me? Um, But if you haven't watched it, like, please go watch it. Maybe we'll be able to talk about it. Maybe I'll have to end up writing about it. I don't know. I don't know. But that movie, that movie's playing games with me and a lot of other people who have taken the time to to watch it out, to check it out. Um, ooh, do I want to talk about 21 Savage and Drake now? Or a little, let's, mm, let's just, no, let's talk about the Barbie movie and then we'll talk about 21 Savage and Drake. So obviously I wanted to go see the Barbie movie. Um, it was cute. It was cute. You know, the main reason I was there was to support everybody black, i.e. Issa Rae. Um, and she wasn't even in the movie all that much, right? Heartbreaking. Didn't like that part, but I get it. The movie was cute. The colors were cute. The plot was strange. It really seemed like they was trying to draw the movie out. Like they just ran out of story to tell and was trying to make sure it lasted long enough for people not to think it was a short film. I don't know. Um, but I definitely didn't have these strong connections to, I guess, the wokeness of Barbie, for lack of better words. Like people were like, yeah, Barbie is a feminist movie. Yeah, a white feminist movie. Like at no point was I watching that movie and seeing anything about my life, my experiences, my barriers, and my challenges as a Black woman reflected in that movie. Like it was given white feminists through and through. It was cute though. It was cute. And I'm not going to hold you. It was a little interesting that like towards the end of the movie, there were people like sniffling in the theater and the theater was pretty much sold out. The show that I had went to was a lot of white people in a theater, in particular white presenting women. Um, And they were like people crying at the end of the Barbie movie. And I had to snap out of my condescending self. Like what the hell's going on in here? And so, well, that's really cool that they were able to see themselves reflected and get some sort of validation, but don't try to talk to me about 
being excited about the Barbie movie <laughs> and uh, feeling connected to the plot or the storyline around feminism. It was for white feminists. It was not for people like me, but it was cute. And Issa Rae did her big one, as always. I'm pro Issa Rae. Pro Issa Rae. Um, before we get into 21 Savage and Drake, you know, I don't know about where y'all are at, but people, the young people are getting ready to return back to school. And, um, have y'all noticed like this increase in all these backpack drives? So I am anti backpacks, turkeys, and toys. For anyone who does not know this about me, I will push back on backpacks, turkeys, and toys, especially in the work I've done, like in the nonprofit sector or with community partners, like individuals who are interested in doing good or giving back. Everybody always wants to do a backpack drive, a toy drive during the holidays, and a turkey drive during Thanksgiving. And baby, I'm going to tell y'all right now, I can't stand them shits. I cannot stand them. I get that it makes people feel good. They really feel like they're giving back, really feel like they're contributing, really feel like they are helping individuals. And I imagine on the surface level that that is occurring. I also know from working proximate to community and working for organizations and being a part of other groups and having access to people and information that a lot of those backpacks that people are giving out in these uh, backpack drives end up in the closets, end up getting lost, end up not getting used at all. Because I also know a lot of these backpack drives have like the backpack, notebook, paper, pencils, coloring pencils, and some other shit. Baby, the kids are using Chromebooks. The kids are on tablets. This paper shit? Nah. You know, a little outdated. But like the kids are on tablets. The kids are on Chromebooks. The kids are not really using papers. I'm, they going to lose that shit. They're going to lose them backpacks. They're going to be gone. Never to be found or seen again. But you know what? They probably got another one at home. Because I also know people who just collect all these backpacks because they're being provided, not because they actually need them. But, you know, um, I support organizations, individuals, community groups, giving people the resources to get what they actually need. So, like, if you know anyone that is talking about having a backpack drive, a turkey drive or a toy drive, maybe think about encouraging them to pivot in, in a different direction where whatever those resources were that they were going to allot towards, I'm talking about the money, whatever money they were going to allot towards the event, think about how they can get that money directly in the hands of families and students and young people and educators um, and not so much purchasing supplies that people did not ask for and may not even need. Like, think about the equity in whatever your distribution process is. But I am anti toys, turkeys, and backpacks. All right, 21 Savage and Drake. Some of y'all may know this because you uh, may have seen it on my Instagram account, but I had the privilege and honor of attending the It's All a Blur tour, the DC stop that happened this past weekend with Drake and 21 Savage. So I was already excited to go because I I stand 21 Savage down. Like, I love me some 21 Savage. Never really been a Drake girl. Never really been a Drake girl. I remember mixtape Drake, like when I was in undergrad. But in terms of like, Drake providing music or soundtracks to different experiences in my life. Like he's never been that for me. 
Um, 21 Savage is also doesn't provide any soundtracks to my life, but yo, baby makes good music. Baby is a storyteller. He has things to share, emotions to 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 let across to other people, and I am dialed all the way in. So about this tour, though, about the concert, um, ahead of going to it, people wanted to say like, "Oh, you going to see Twenty One Savage? He ain't really got no stage presence. He don't really do blah 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 blahzy blahzy blahzy." All the anti Twenty One Savage, all the slander stops today. It stops today. Because he put on a, sh- a show, like he worked the stage, he was engaging the crowd, right? He even had his little, not a dance move, but you know, like a little hood two-step. He was making all of his marks. He had dope visuals. Um, he did a phenomenal job. He also had these moments where like, if you really look at him and just know a little bit about his story and where he comes from and what he's been through, what he's currently going through with all this immigration bullshit, he was really looking at that, looking up in the audience, looking up at the crowd, like, damn, bro, like I'm really here. This is really happening. I'm in front of 20,000 people, bro. Like I'm really doing this. And you could see like the inner black boy inside of him shining on that stage. And I just couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough. Overall, the tour was phenomenal. The visuals, the productions, the tour was expensive. I'm not talking about the ticket, like the actual production of the tour. Expensive. Like the lights, the pyro, the sound, the inflatables, the visuals that were all over the stage, all the cameras, and the inflatables. Drake had so many damn inflatables. It was almost like every song had its own inflatable. And I'm talking about like Macy's Day Parade size inflatables moving throughout the concert venue. He had sperm as an inflatable. Yes, an actual inflatable version of sperm was floating around the stage. He had like a paper airplane as an inflatable. He even had some anime looking character with big old titties as an inflatable who went around the stage and then landed on the stage. I said, this is phenomenal. And also who was controlling all of these inflatables because they are doing a fantastic job making all of their marks, providing the ultimate experience for these concert goers, including myself. And so if anybody is thinking about going to see Drake and 21 Savage and you you honestly don't even have to be a big Drake or 21 Savage fan. If you just enjoy live music and a good ass show the way I do, like I love concerts, theater, Broadway, all that shit. I love a good show. I love good production. I love good music. Like it's it's a time and it might be worth yours. Just saying you may want to consider. I think that is all that I have for the week in terms of Earth is Ghetto because I really want to take some time in our next segment for uh, Tales from the Trap. So for the Tales from the Trap this week, I really want to continue the conversation from last week about working with youth and young adults. Um, when I shared about it last week, I even shared a little about a little bit about it on my Instagram 
um, just a lot of people were sending me messages or leaving comments around um, just working with youth and young adults with new perspectives and new curiosities. And I was like, hey, I might as well make some space to talk about this further because this is honestly one of my bags. Like I have a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience in this area. And it's something that when I talk about it or teach about it or engage these concepts with either, you know, teachers, educators, probation officers, therapists, clinicians, students, whomever find themselves working with young people, I really share from the heart. Because like I mentioned before and will continue to mention, this is the population that chose me. I did not choose to work with youth and young adults. They literally chose me. When I was early, early, early on in my career, I'm talking about not even in my career, when I was in undergrad, like you could ask anybody who knew me back in the day, I would say, I do not want to work with kids. I do not want to do it. Like, that's not my ministry. Get me out of here. Leave me alone. Um, but look at me now, right? Like all these years later, well over a decade later, and this is just where I have been and I love it and I would not change anything. So I said that young people chose me because they invited me into their lives. They invited me into their hearts. They share a bit of their stories, their honesty. They let me see them for who they are. And I do not take that for granted. I do not abuse that. I do not take that for granted because I understand that nobody, including young people, youth and young adults, owe me shit. They owe me nothing. And so the fact that I've been able to do this work for a number of years with them because they have invited me into their lives and I have willingly and graciously accepted to be in their lives and in their hearts like, I always say they chose me. I did not choose them. So for me, my journey of working with young people actually started when I was an undergrad. I got a job at the YMCA in an after school program. This was around that time when I was anti-youth. <laughs> and I got assigned to an elementary school. And the main reason I took the job, because at the time back in 2008, like it paid $15 an hour, $15 an hour when I was living in San Jose, California, attending San Jose State University. And so I took this job and it really introduced me to a different version of myself, a more lighter version of myself, structured and caring version of myself, a curious version of myself, and a really um, like a human and childlike version of myself that I found that I enjoyed. Um, I, they, you know, working with young people is going to cause you to really explore all the different versions of who you are and who you're not. And at the same time, like how to be mindful, it is not their role or responsibility to teach you anything, but you have to be open to receiving the lessons they provide because they have been some of my greatest teachers of myself and in this work. And so I also do not take that for granted. And so I started working with young people in 2008 when I was at the YMCA. And then when I graduated from undergrad and I moved back home, my first job was in a residential treatment center. And I've talked about that on a previous episode. I did that for a year 
um, until I applied for grad school and then moved out to Richmond, Virginia from California to attend Virginia Commonwealth University um, social work program. And my first placement, my first year placement in the social work program was the Richmond Department of Social Services. And I was in the foster care unit. And so I did that my first year. And the second year I worked, I interned at a, another residential treatment for, facility. Um, but this one was a bit different from the one that I worked with, right, worked at right out of undergrad because it was an open campus. They had a different therapeutic model. There weren't like isolation rooms and all this other type of shit that I remember that I had um, at that previous job, which was very, very, very institutional. Like it reminded me of a detention center or some shit. Um, so I did I did that as my second year intern internship while also working at a group home. And so I worked at a group home from 2011 until 2000 and maybe 17, I think. And my group home was um, the male group home. So it was 13 to 18 year olds. And it was short-term stay because it was a diagnostic and assessment home. So the young people stayed for about 90 days and they transitioned somewhere else. Some went back home. Some went to other foster homes. Some went to other group homes. Some went to other treatment facilities. Um, but they were there for about 90 days. And, and I was there, like I said, from 2011 to about 2017. And that was those were some of the best years of my career like working in the residential treatment and because in true social work fashion, while I was also like at the residential treatment, I worked part-time at the psych hospital while still having a full-time job where I did the um, alternatives to incarceration program for young people who were impacted by community violence and were on probation in Richmond, um, Virginia. So I did all of those things. <laughs> At the same time, because who only has one job as a social worker? I don't know. I'm such an, I am still trying to figure that shit out. But I did all of that. And I had access to so many different types of young people. So many stories, so many experiences. I saw up close the evil that exists in the world. And I also saw up close the joy that exists in the world. Like, even though I was in close proximity to young people who had some of the most like unimaginable things happen to them, like unimaginable, like the type of shit that just makes you want to fight people, just make you want to fight. They were also filled with joy. Um, and my experience with them was like this willingness to trust me. And so... I have, I am proud to say <laughs> that I have never been the source of a young person's aggression, their anger, or their violence. Now, have I witnessed young people demonstrate anger, aggression, and, and violence towards other adults? Absolutely. If I'm being honest with y'all, did some of those ad adults deserve that shit? Hell yeah. Like adults are ghetto and trifling as hell especially in some of these environments um, where I was working. Like it was really adults were coming into a situation trying to control young people and demand things out of them that they were not giving. Try to demand respect, 
demand communication and clarity and boundaries, all type of shit that they were actually not even giving young people or knew how to model. And so I've always been grateful that I've, I've been the chill one. Like I can't even fully express through words how incredibly composed I am and like during a crisis or when somebody is destroying a room or a unit or smearing shit on the wall. <laughs> Like, I can't even really, I'm really good. I'm really good in a crisis when it comes to working with young people and even adults. And so when I think about my journey of working with young people, I also had so much to unlearn, which was like, they're not even the problem, right? Like a lot of these systems and programs and services and even reimbursements are set up to identify young people as the problem when they are not because so much of their life is outside of their control. They cannot control where they live. They cannot control when they come and go certain places. Like they just cannot control so many things, but yet they are identified as the problem. And that has always to this day like it just irks the hell out of me. Because when you really look around the environment or the households, the schools, the communities, like the other adults that are in a young person's life, like I'm talking about teachers, coaches, grandparents, parents, um, parents, partners, siblings, everybody, their neighbor, everybody. When you look around and see some of the adults that are in young people's lives, and you wonder why young people are behaving or doing and, and you know thinking and saying and dressing a certain way, why are we shocked and surprised? So much is outside of young people's control. And so when I began to unlearn, like kids are actually not the problem. The, the system has identified them as the problem. The insurance agency say you had to identify them as the client and associate all the problems or diagnosis with them. But like, it's their parents. It's their teachers, it's school staff, it's neighbors, it's their aunt, their grandma, their uncle, their older cousins, their older siblings. Like it's all these other people <laughs> in their lives that are making it incredibly difficult for them to do well. And so I really came to this kind of, I'm gonna have to call it my own awakening when I was doing individual therapy with young court ordered individual therapy. That's a whole different beast for anyone who has done court ordered services because it's already like they definitely don't want to be here. But if they don't come and don't do whatever they're supposed to be doing, it could result in them getting locked up or even get additional charges. So it's like, look, I know you don't want to be here. And here's what we need to do in order to get you out of this office as soon as possible. Like that would always be my approach. And so I was doing that work in a court order program and it was one young person's mother and it was during like the family session. The kid wasn't there because it had gotten to the point where I, I had to like tell judge and other court staff, like it's not him. Like y'all keep trying to put it on him trying to violate him for uh, breaking curfew or not going to school or testing dirty, all type of shit. But it's like, well, when he's at home, there's weed all over the house. 
on the dining room table, coffee table, side table. There's weed everywhere. Like people just smoke in the house. And so for him to test positive for weed just makes sense because it's everywhere around him. Adult smoking in the house. Adults' friends are smoking in the house. Everybody's smoking in the house. So it's not him. And so when he's violating curfew and not going home, he don't want to be at home because of all the people that are in his house. He does not feel safe, does not feel calm, does not feel secure. He has nowhere to lay the hell down. And he's not going to school because he's so far behind, even though he is brilliant as hell. He's so far be far behind because of all of the inconsistencies and the like moving all the goddamn time. And he just has fallen behind. And so it's like, it's not him, y'all. And then when I started working with his mother, it really hit me. Like I remember being in the session and I had this thought. I was like, mm, she really can't do this shit. Like, and by do this shit, I mean parent. I mean care be empathetic, show love, manage expectations, have boundaries, communicate. Like she really can't do this shit. Like she is not good at this. I didn't say any of this out loud, of course. I reflected it back using some wonderful therapeutic words that cost me $80,000 to be able to say, right? So I didn't say like, you, you, are, mm, you are horrible at this, but it would have been nice if sometimes we could just be clear and straight to the point but I remember I had the thought I was like she is not good at this and that brings me to the point of people who ask the questions around like well what is it like to work with young people and their parents even though you're not a parent because I don't got no kids excuse me I don't have no kids I don't have no kids and that does not mean that I am not great with working with kids or working with parents because I'm actually phenomenal at working with kids and working with parents. And I've had to grow to become confident. Of course, when I was earlier in my career, I was very insecure thinking like, well, I'm going to be challenged when I say X, Y, and Z. And then the parent is like, well, you don't really know what it's like. Do you got kids? And then I got to be like, no. <laughs> but then how does that even help the situation, right? And so what I've learned to do in those kind of moments when I'm talking with parents and caregivers about what's happening with a young, young person, offering some sort of solutions or insights or skills or things to get curious about, things to explore, I don't ever say actually to any client, regardless of who they are, I never say I understand how you feel. Um, that is a trigger in itself. Like if a parent is talking to me about the young person not listening or taking items or not going to school or raising their voice or fighting their siblings or disrespecting them, I never say I know how you feel. What I often say is like, I know what it feels like too, right? And then kind of insert whatever that is. Like I know what it feels like to, you know, be feel invisible or feel disrespected or unheard or unappreciated. Like I, that's the way I often get in with people in particular parents when they're talking to me about their young people. And by talking, sometimes y'all, they really just be complaining about their kids. 
<laughs> but when they're talking to me about their young people, I just say, I know what it feels like too. And then insert whatever those feelings are that you're trying to get them to sit with. Um, but back to this mom, like I was thinking like, oh, she's really horrible at this shit. And what I shared with her and what I have shared with other parents and caregivers is like, just because you are a parent or responsible legally or otherwise for caring for another person does not mean you automatically know what to do and that you are good at it. Because this, you know, parenting in 2020, insert whatever that year is, we can say parenting in 2023 requires some phenomenal skill sets, some of which you just naturally do not have at no fault of your own. Um, And then think about ways of like inviting them into being curious about learning new ways of relating or being with the young people. And I'm going to tell you, it's been really difficult to do that work in particular with Black parents. Um, There's just so many constructs around how young people should behave or respect or do or don't do, speak, dress, so many things that are rooted in just white supremacy culture and thinking and so he's like deconstructing a lot of that to then get them to see their child as a whole person which is really tough for black people is to black parents in particular to see their kids as autonomous beings but imagine that Uh, (laughs) imagine that and helping helping parents understand and just even educators anybody that's in a young person's life helping them understand that like kids don't belong to you They don't belong to me. They don't belong to any adult. They belong to themselves. They don't owe you anything. You don't get to control them. You don't get to tell them what to do. Like, they don't belong to any of us. And then even helping adults reflect back, like, how are you modeling or showing the things you're asking young people to do? How are you modeling or demonstrating emotional regulation, emotional intelligence, executive functioning skills, social skills, problem solving, decision making? Like, how are you even doing or modeling these things and expecting them out of young people? Like, that just sounds wild to me. Absolutely wild. Some of the hardest work that has to be done when it comes to improving the lives and well-being of youth and young adults is to get closer to the adults in their lives. Parents, caregivers, chosen family, birth families, educators, probation officers, court officials, social service, human service employees, social workers, therapists, counselors. Adults are really bad off right now. Adults are not doing well. We're a very, very, very ghetto bunch. Very ghetto bunch. And so to expect things that we can't even deliver on as adults from young people who didn't even ask to be in this bitch, they didn't ask to come to this ghetto ass earth, but they're here. They're here, deserving of our full respect for their humanity, for who they are as people. And adults have the hardest time, the most difficult time, respecting and seeing young people for who they are. And that's where the work is. Kids will forever and always be the easiest part of all of this. Easiest part of all of this. 
And so any therapist or social worker, counselor, student, career, somebody who's currently in their career, like, I'm going to say it again. You cannot and should not work with young people if you are unwilling to work with adults. That's where the bulk of your work is. I'm talking about navigating the system and system challenges, the barriers, dealing with insurance companies, principals, school administrators, court officials, prescribing physicians. If you cannot work with adults, if you don't have the mindset of working with adults, leave kids alone. I'm not begging. I'm just asking that you reflect on it. Leave kids alone if you are not willing to work with adults. And I would also say that nobody should be going straight from a graduate program into private practice trying to work with anybody, especially some kids. Because I'm going to tell you right now, you're probably going to mess them up because you're not ready. You're not ready. Firm believer, until you have been cussed out by a kid at a school, a group home, a treatment center, a detention center. Until you at a hospital, baby, until you have been cussed out by a kid, you're not ready. It's like a rite of passage. <laughs> it's a rite of passage. And it'll also let you know if, that's, if they are for you. Because to have a kid read you for filth and you not center your ego in that, but still be willing to bridge and build a relationship with a young person because you see them for who they are and also see where you or somebody else may have messed up and then you can own shit that doesn't even belong to you. Because working with kids is also being able to apologize and own the bullshit of adults, even if you have done no wrong towards them. And so until you were able to do that work, leave kids alone. They are not for you. They are not for you. You do not go into work. The, you do not go into the field of working with youth and young adults if you were looking to control anything or anyone. If you were looking to absolve some poor decision making from the past, if you're looking to go back and save little you, all that shit, until you have worked through all that shit, kids are not there for you to work through your shit. Leave kids alone. Yes, they're cute. They're funny as hell. They're a good time. They're in the business of pleasing adults. They are curious. They are loving. They are kind. They are creative. They are so many things. But they're not your toy. They're not your prop. They are full people. Full people. Autonomous beings that none of us get to control or tell what to do. And so until you can arrive to that place as an adult where you see young people as whole people and not someone to control, you see young people as whole people and recognize you must work with adults in order to best work with them, leave them babies alone. Please and thank you. And that's all I got for this week's Tales from the Trap. Let's get into a good Black word. So a good Black word for this week. It's actually brought to us by one of my former second graders. 
So I used to work in the school system and um have I was at, I was at an elementary school and this had to be like 2014. So about 10 years ago, I do not remember the context of the conversation. I was probably on some adult bullshit talking, thinking, stressing about something out loud. This precious chocolatey baby just looked at me <laughs> and I could still see his little face. I also still have a picture of him in my phone because he had the cutest little smile and little dimples. He looked at me and said, you'll be all right. With the most nonchalant, like girl, bye, move along, you'll be all right. So that is our good black word for the week because I still lean into that, recall that, think about, I think about those three words, you'll be I constantly because it's true. That little second grader unlocked the key to living is <laughs> with this acceptance that you will honestly be I when you're stressing, when you're overthinking, when you're not caring for yourself in the way that you should, when life is just feeling overwhelmed, I will ground myself in this belief that I will honestly be I. Right. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. No, I'll be I. Right. And it isn't like trying to push or suppress or numb other feelings that might be competing with this idea of being all right. Like it's accepting all those things are true and happening at that time. And I will be I. And so shout out to that precious chocolate baby, that beautiful second grader from 2014, who looked at me in the most sincere, nonchalant, girl, get your shit together way and said, you'll be I. So that is our good black word for this week is that you'll be I. Not all right, but I. You'll be I. Thank y'all for sticking it out with me this week. And as always, please remember to take care of yourselves so that we can take care of each other because y'all, we are all we got. And we will chat next time.